focused on the phrase, um, thy kingdom come, your kingdom come. And one of the beautiful things about this prayer is it is found in the context of what we call the Sermon on the Mount. And one of the neat things about the context of the Sermon on the Mount is that if you're studying the book of Matthew, if you look at chapter 4, verse 17, and then verse 23, uh, you'll find a passage of scripture that tells us about the activities of Jesus, the kinds of things that Jesus did. And then if you skip over to chapter 9, Matthew chapter 9, verse 35, you'll read almost word for word what you read in Matthew 4, 23. So you read all these things that Jesus did, and then at the end of this section, you read the exact same thing all over again. And so when you look at the structure of this section of Scripture, what you find is this. You find the activity of Jesus, the, the healing, the good, the service, the help, all the beautiful, incredible things, the kinds of things that Jesus spent his life doing. And then at the end of that section, you see that sort of thing repeated. You see it all over again. So what we find on both ends of this, uh, just call it a sandwich, on both slices of bread, you find the good works, the good deeds, the activity of the kingdom. This is the kind of thing that the kingdom of God is about. Well, right in the middle of it, you find the Sermon on the Mount. You find the teachings of Jesus. So we see both the action, the activity of Jesus at work, and we see the things that Jesus taught concerning the kingdom. And one of the most beautiful things about the kingdom of God of course, is the work of Christ through the Holy Spirit. And I, want to, I don't need to remind you, but I'm going to anyway. One of the beautiful things about the kingdom is the mysteries of the kingdom, the ways that God works. And sometimes it's many ways far beyond what we ever imagined, uh, what we ever thought that God might do or would do or could do. Our God is great. Our God is powerful. I want to remind you that we serve a God who spoke and created the universe that we know and the earth that we live in. I want to remind you that God has never stopped working to accomplish his will and his purposes. Throughout history, even in times where God was silent, and it seemed that he had removed himself. God was always working, always working. I love the lyrics of the song Waymaker. Even when I don't see it, you're working. Even when I don't feel it, you're working. You never stop. You never stop working. That's the God we serve. And one of the beautiful things about being in the kingdom is we get to see sometimes upfront, close, and personal, the incredible, miraculous, beautiful power of the living God in our lives. So 
we've determined that every month we're going to show a video testimony of what God, the kind of work that God does here at Irving Church. And so uh, you're going to really enjoy and appreciate this video testimony. three years old she just turned three um, a couple weeks ago and she's really funny and outgoing and uh, smart and strong-willed um, articulate yeah, <laughs> yeah um, last week she was listening to the sermon at church um, and our associate pastor Josh said uh, you know Jesus wants our hearts and Nora looked up from coloring and she said what is Jesus going to do with my heart? <laughs> um, so we were thinking back, it's been um, a year since fall breaks. So it was the first week of October last year. Um, Nora started to get really sick with what um, presented like a stomach bug. Um, at first she just um, and was tired and seemed to have a stomach bug and that was on a Sunday. And by Wednesday, she still um, hadn't gotten any better. She was passing like blood in her stool and she wouldn't eat, she wouldn't drink. So we took her to her pediatrician and the pediatrician basically sent us home. Um, they were like, don't worry about it, it's nothing. Um, and the next morning, Nora, um, Scott was gonna take the first hour of the day off and then I was gonna take the rest of the day. I was just gonna go in and get my kind of program started and then come back. And when I came in from work, Nora didn't even lift her head up off the pillow. Um, and I just knew then, like I had this feeling and I just loaded her up in the car and took her to children's. Um, and as soon as a triage nurse saw us, um, she's like, this is emergent. And she um, took us back to an ER hospital room pretty quickly. We waited for a long time in the ER, but once the nurse saw us, they were like, this is serious. Um, and from there, they got her hooked up to an IV to get her rehydrated, and they were in some tests. They admitted us that night, and um, when the tests and the labs came back, they told us she had a variant of E. coli, um, which they told us, you know, presents exactly how we'd seen it as a stomach bug, that as long as she was on an IV and getting hydrated, she was going to be fine, um, but there was this minor chance that she could get this um, hemolytic uremic syndrome. There's this like, I mean, I, I can't remember the percentage point. It was literally like a decimal percentage point yeah. that it could turn into um, HUS. So they're like, don't worry about that. You should be out of here in a couple days. So it was Thursday night that we were admitted. Friday, she spent the day getting hydrated. Um, and then Saturday morning, it was looking like we were gonna go home. She was um, back to like appropriate levels of hydration. Mm -hmm. And so um, Scott went home to clean the house, um, disinfect everything just to make sure that the virus wasn't on any of the surfaces of our house. And, um, and I was there with Nora getting her packed and dressed and a resident came in and told us that Nora did have HUS mm. um, and that we would need to not leave the hospital. And then 
By the time Scott got back, an attending came in and he told us that Nora had hemolytic uremic syndrome, that best case scenario we were looking at over a month's stay and kidney dialysis. Um, and Scott um, asked about the worst case. Um, and he was like, I don't want to talk about the worst case scenario. And Scott said, well, could she die? And the attending said yes. And then he told us that we were, things were going to get really bad really fast, and he was right. Um, it basically, um, from that Saturday afternoon to the following Tuesday, um, Nora's stats just did a roller coaster like nosedive. Um, hemoglobin, platelet counts, kidney function, like everything just. I mean, cratered mm -hmm. um, out of nowhere. Tuesday, they came in and told us that um, the next morning, Wednesday, she needed to have um, a surgery to start her on kidney dialysis. She was entering into renal failure, so her kidneys were shutting down and, and organs were starting to turn off. On Tuesday, they came in and they said, we need to do a sonogram and an EKG because now we're worried about seizures. We're worried about her heart. And we're worried about her brain. We're yeah. worried. Like, things are going poorly. The kidneys aren't keeping up. And once the kidneys are now failing, everything else starts to go. Um, and so we went from, on, like, a week and two days prior, having a perfectly healthy kid who we were taking to the fair and to the zoo, um, to, like, all of your daughter's organs are shutting down. Um, and I remember we um, just did... Um, basically a, a desperate call for prayer and I believe there were literally thousands of people on Thursday I mean on that Tuesday um, yeah thousands of people that Tuesday who entered into intercessory prayer for Nora um, and a group of people from our church came up and prayed um, on that Tuesday night a small group from our church um, came to the chapel at Children's and I remember that night um, it was the first time I left the room um, and all that. And I went and sat down in the chapel and they just prayed that God would just miraculously heal Nora, that the disease would just start to leave her body for no reason um, other than his power. Um, and I just remember crying because I didn't think there was any way. in the pre-op room on Wednesday morning and a surgeon came running down the hall literally into pre-op with Nora on the stretcher with her little cap and surgery gown and said we're not doing surgery we're not cutting this baby open her labs turned around this morning and we don't know why um, but Scott went straight to the um, hospital room and fell to his knees and thanked God for the miracle, and um, and he was right. The next uh, two days, really. That was it. She just came up with no explanation. All of her labs started to turn around. There was no explanation. There was nothing that had happened. There was no treatment that was given. There was no answers. Um, there was a hospital full of doctors who didn't have an answer. And then there was just miraculous healing. Um, they didn't just not have an answer. 
They told us that's not, that's not this, this should not be happening. Yeah. Um, the blood transfusions that weren't doing anything before were suddenly um, helping. And from that point on, um, we were still fighting a disease, but there was never a question that Nora wasn't going to make it. I still consider myself fairly like, like young in my faith, but at that time, I was very much a, I don't know, like a hedging your bets Christian. Like, like yeah, this, yeah, this is probably true, and you know, that's great, and if it is, you know, that's wonderful, but if it isn't, you know, that's all, that's fine too. Um, you know, I'd never had, I'd never had an experience with God. I'd never, um, you know, up, up until then I had lived, you know, a fairly, you know, easy life, you know, all things considered. Um, and had never spent a lot of time in prayer, and I had never had anything, you know, very serious happen. Um, but whenever you're, when you're in the room, when you are in the room that God moves in, there's, there's not any question in your mind as to what's happened. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's un undeniably and unbelievably clear whenever whenever it's when you're there and it's happening and you're watching it and it is a miraculous event I don't yeah I mean I, I, I would just say that you know I've I've seen God I've met God Having had our experience with Nora um, and having had this experience with God, I think um, I would tell people who are struggling with belief to pray specifically with expectation. I think we pray generally um, with dismissal. And I think God is ready to be in relationship with us and to come alongside us and to work in the things we ask him expectantly for. And I don't think I'd ever done that in my life truly until this um, time of need where there was nobody else to work, there was nothing I could do. And I think if I approached more or if we approached more in our lives with the attitude of there's nothing I can do, then we would see what God can do. sing with me. God is so good. God is so good. God is so good. He's so good to me. He answers prayer. He answers prayer. He answers prayer. He's so good to me. Let's everybody give Jesus a big hand.
You see that? What you just saw, that's the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the beauty of the love of God. That's the love of God in action. Can't always be explained, can't always be understood, but it is as real as the nose on your face. And we praise God for that. So, the Lord's Prayer begins, Our Father. One of the interesting things about the Lord's Prayer, I want you to look at it like this for a moment anyway, uh, this is probably something that Jesus prayed. If you think about it, if you think about every word, every phrase in, in the Lord's Prayer, I can just see Jesus praying this prayer. And so when his disciples asked him, Lord, teach us to pray, and he taught them, uh, I think he probably taught them from his own personal experience in talking to his Father. And so, our Father. And we could talk for a long, long time today about those two words right there. Our Father. But one point I want to make very quickly is that the kingdom of God is about the collective experience of God in the lives of all of his people. He's not just my father. He's not just your father. He is our father. He's our father. He has chosen not just me, not just you. He's chosen us. And somebody in the church might say, well, God's never worked a miracle in my life, or I've never seen God. Well, I'm going to tell you something. He did it in Nora. He did it in that family. He did it in that extended family. He did it in this extended family. It is God working in all of us, in his people, in his kingdom. It is a miracle that we have all experienced in a very powerful way. And that's the way God is. He works in my life, he works in your life, he works in the next person's life, but yet at the same time, it all works together. He works in our life. And so when, we, when you pray, when I pray, we're all praying, our Father, our Father in heaven, you know, that's something that's a little interesting to me because God is spoken of as being transcendent in heaven overall. He's not the man upstairs. He's God. He's not like us and all these things. But yet at the same time, he is imminent. He is close as the air that we breathe. I, I don't fully understand all that about God, but I know that's how he is. I know that's who he is. And so understand that culturally in that day and time in all of the ancient near uh, cultures and civilizations that were near Israel, for all these centuries of time, they believed in the gods. And they believed that the gods were up in the skies. And they did so because of the stars. They looked at the stars and they 
followed the stars and they studied the stars and, and they looked at the constellations and all of that. And I, I certainly, I don't even understand it, much less can I explain it to you. But uh, you could do a lot of research on that and you could learn that there is a direct correlation between idolatry, the gods, the hosts of heaven that you read about and, and all these things. And if, if you just bear with us a while, uh, hopefully, uh, one thing I'm hoping and praying for is that maybe this fall uh, in the Sunday morning adult Bible class, Seth's going to explain all that to us. Boy, that's going to be interesting. I'm, I'm going to tell you something. There's so much that is interesting <laughs> in all that. Nonetheless, when you lived in that day and time and you thought of God, whoever your God was, He's in the skies. He's in the heavens. And of course, the Word of God tells us that in so many words, in many places. So God is above us. Now, is that literal? Figurative? I don't know. I don't know. But we address, Jesus told his disciples to address God as our Father in heaven. And so that's what we do. Um, hallowed be your name. I know Luke talked uh, about this some last week. I'm, I'm just going to touch it very, very briefly. Uh, the, the, the Greek term translated hallowed is simply the, the, the same word that's always translated holy. Holy. And some translations will, some of the modern translations will say, Our Father in heaven, holy is your name. Um, a, a verse in the New Testament that I thought uh, gives the the, the gist of that is 1 Peter 3, verse 15. I've got three translations there. Uh, one says, sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. The other one says, in your hearts set apart Christ as Lord. And the third one says, in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. So sanctify, holy, pretty much the same thing. Set apart, honor Christ in that way. I think if you take those concepts and put them together, uh, setting apart, because like I said, God is not the man upstairs. He is different in amazing, beautiful, incredible ways. And we honor that, and we honor his holiness, his purity, his righteousness. Let's look at the structure of the Lord's Prayer briefly. This is poetry really. You've got three statements, your name, your kingdom, your will, obviously talking about the Father, and then you have this turn around, give us, forgive us, lead us. And so that's part of the structure of the Lord's Prayer. The English teachers might find it interesting if we have any. Uh, then we get to the phrase I'm going to spend my time on, your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. And so, I've already mentioned in Mark, I mean Matthew 4.23 and 9.35 that Jesus came preaching the good news of the kingdom. That's what, that's what the scripture says. The good news of the kingdom. So, when we talk about kingdom, uh, kingdom, when, when I was uh, young and going to church all the time and listening to uh, my dad and other guys get up and give sermons and everything, uh, the kingdom sermons, which were not very many, 
were some of the most boring sermons. Uh, I, some of you are nodding your head in agreement. So yeah. Uh, and I think it's because we, uh, in, in some ways, the, the kingdom wasn't really understood properly. But when Jesus comes, and, and the Bible says more than once, he comes preaching, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, that's something we can relate to because we have all, at some time or another, we've heard good news. We've had people come running up to us and telling us, hey, I got something to tell you. Or somebody calls us on the phone, I got some good news. And we love good news. We love good news. Good news is good. And that's what the kingdom is about. So when we talk about the kingdom, when we're referring to the kingdom, when we look at what the scripture says about the kingdom, this is all good. This is very, very good. It's good for us. It's good for me. It's good for you. It's, it's good for those who are seeking God. And Jesus said it would be proclaimed to all nations. The word kingdom is found 124 times in the gospels. Nearly every time, not all, but nearly every time in reference to the, the kingdom of God. And it's found 56 times in the book of Matthew. That ought to tell you something. When we do our inductive Bible study, remember that when Brad Johnson was here and we did workshops on inductive Bible study and everything? This is where the bells go off. Ding-a-ling-a-ling, this is a big deal. The repetition. We see this repeated over and over and over and over and over. And that tells us this is a big deal with God. This is important. Now, Matthew uses the phrase kingdom of heaven almost exclusively. None of the other gospel writers refer to the kingdom as the kingdom of heaven. They always talk about uh, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of the Father, his kingdom, your kingdom, the Son of Man's kingdom, and Jesus referring to the kingdom saying, my kingdom. And we find phrases, the children of the kingdom and the sons of the kingdom. So the kingdom is used in different ways, and all of these different ways help us to understand the kingdom a little bit better. Jesus said the kingdom was near. It's at hand. It is approaching. It is come to us. It's available. And that was good news. The kingdom of God is available to you. And back in that day when you lived as a Jew under the oppression of the Roman Empire, and you would go to the synagogue and you would hear the word of God proclaimed and you would hear prophecies just like the one that was read this morning in Isaiah chapter 2 and many other prophecies about what God was going to do and the Messiah that God was going to send and how they would be delivered and they would be saved and all the beautiful good characteristics about this new work of God, this new kingdom that God was going to usher in. The Jews longed for that. They prayed that it would come. And when they read the scriptures, when they read the prophets, when they were taught in their synagogues, it just filled their souls with excitement and hope and joy because they could not wait for the time when the promised Messiah would come and God would usher in his kingdom. But it just didn't happen 
in the way that they imagined or believed that it would. Jesus spoke of the keys of the kingdom and the secrets of the kingdom. He spoke of those who were trained for the kingdom. The kingdom is spoken of as being given. Sometimes it's spoken of as being received or inherited. The Bible talks about people who are entering into the kingdom. And those, it talks about people who are fit for the kingdom. It talks about people seeking the kingdom, seeing the kingdom, looking for the kingdom. It talks about the proclamation of the kingdom, which we've already mentioned. And it even refers to some of the religious leaders of Jesus' day. And Jesus says, you are keeping people out of the kingdom. You're shutting the doors of the kingdom because of your teaching, because of what you, the way you are leading people. Who is in it? The Bible specifically says, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the prophets are in the kingdom. Tax collectors, prostitutes, Jesus said. The, the prophetic word that you, you, you heard and, and others uh, from the book of Isaiah and the other prophets, the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, the diseased, the brokenhearted, on and on you could go. And basically the point is, and this is what was so powerful in the Sermon on the Mount, and it was so powerful in that section in Matthew chapter 5, starting at about verse 3, I don't know where they got beatitudes. Why in the world would you call it beatitude? That, that gives you the impression uh, you're supposed to have this attitude. So this is something you're supposed to work for. And this is something you strive for. And you can accomplish this. That's not at all what that means. That's not at all what Jesus was saying. Jesus was simply saying this kingdom is available to all of you. Any of these descriptive terms or designations that Jesus threw out there, the kingdom's for you. And man, was that good news because the fact is, in the first century, there was sort of a caste system, spiritually speaking, or with religion, among the Jews. The priests, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, all of these, these were the people that had power. These were the people who were the leaders of the kingdom. At least they were self-appointed and anointed themselves as such. And everybody else, they were the lowlifes. They weren't good enough. They could not reach the level of these people because these people were the righteous ones. But Jesus came and he turned their world upside down. In fact, especially if you read Matthew chapter 23, the people that were regarded as the religious leaders of the day, Jesus had some pretty bad things to say about them. They were not the ones that you're reading about in Matthew chapter 5. And so basically what Jesus was saying is the kingdom is available for every one of you. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter if you're poor. It doesn't matter if you're brokenhearted. It doesn't matter 
how you feel about yourself. If your self-worth is down in the dumps and you don't think you're worth anything or the people that love you don't think you're worth anything or if life has just gone bad for you or you live a life of grief and sorrow or if you're depressed or if you're lonely or discouraged or whatever, we could go on and on and on and on. But Jesus is bringing good news, telling the world that it doesn't matter who you are. You may be some of the people that are the most rejected in your society. And in that time, the tax collectors and the prostitutes, that's like probably the top two rejects among the Jews. And Jesus said, the kingdom of God is for you. And even said people like the tax collectors and and the prostitutes, this is what he told the religious leaders, they will enter the kingdom of heaven before you do. And what great news that was for everybody. The kingdom was here. It was for them. The kingdom is for the humble, the childlike, and specifically, he mentions children. What's it like? Well, it's like a treasure that you would stumble across. There's a parable of the pearl of great price. The guy finds a pearl that is worth so much that he goes and sells every single thing he has. He sells it all. He empties his checking account, his savings account. He cashes in his 401k. He gives everything. And so Jesus was telling, look, the kingdom is so wonderful and great and beautiful and life-changing that it is the top priority. There is nothing else Nothing else. Nothing else matters. It's like leaven. It spreads. It's like a piece of yeast in a big wad of dough, and it just spreads through the whole thing. It's like a mustard seed. It seems so little, so tiny, so small and insignificant, and yet it turns into something big and great. There are many, many examples. And Jesus, when He was interrogated by Pontius Pilate before his crucifixion. He told him, when Pilate asked him, are you a king then? And he said, well, you said it. (laughs) Then he said, my kingdom is not of this world. And it's been called the upside down kingdom. However kingdoms of the world have looked like over the centuries of time, it's not like that. There have been many kings, many powerful rulers who were tyrants, who were cruel. But your King Jesus is not like that. There are many kings that have forced their rule on their subjects, but your King Jesus is not like that. Jesus is a servant king. Jesus gave his life for those who would be in his kingdom. Jesus rules by love. But listen to what he said. In Luke 17, 20, 21, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God will come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Or some translations say the kingdom of God is within you. In Luke eleven twenty, 20, 
But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Matthew 12, verse 22. A demon-possessed man, a demon-oppressed man, who was blind and mute, was brought to him, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It's only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons, knowing their thoughts. He said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come to you. Heal the sick in it. Jesus sent his disciples out into the cities and the towns and villages. He says, heal the sick in whatever city you go in. Say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into the streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. And one of the scribes came up and asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you're right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. You see, all of these verses that I just read They describe life in the kingdom. That's what they're doing. And that's why Jesus said, when you see this or when I do that, you know the kingdom's here. So it's not like drive 100 miles that direction and cross the border and then you'll be in the kingdom. It's not like that. It's not that kind of kingdom. It's totally different. Remember, Jesus said, my kingdom's not of this world. It's a kingdom from the heavens, if you will. It's the kingdom of God. It is God coming to earth. It's heaven coming to earth. It's heaven and earth coming together. It's the beauty and the glory and the light of God coming into humanity and coming into our world, coming into our lives. That's the kingdom of God. Every person who bows to Jesus Christ and receives him as their Lord and Savior and King, every person who welcomes the rule of Christ, everyone who submits their life to obedience to King Jesus, they are part of the kingdom of God. And that 
my brothers and sisters, is what we must pray fervently for. We have entered into a year to focus on prayer. Today, we're studying just a little part of the Lord's Prayer. And the point that I want to make to all of you is that see the beauty and the glory of the kingdom. Let's see it for what it is. And if we are moved by that, if we understand that, if we appreciate the glory of God's kingdom, then how can we not ask and pray diligently and fervently that the kingdom of God comes to all people? In other words, that everyone will receive the kingdom. So if you're wondering what to pray about, if you're having some struggle in your prayer life, and you find praying to God not necessarily easy, here it is, folks. Here is an abundance of material to pray about and people to pray for. Every people group that you can imagine, every individual, if there is someone that you are personally struggling with, if there is a relationship that's not going well, if there is someone that's mistreating you, if there is someone who has hurt you, if there's someone that won't speak to you, if there's someone who has cursed you, whatever, pray that the kingdom of God will come to them more fully. That's what you do. If there's something in society, some injustice, some cause that causes you sleepless nights and you worry about it, pray for the, that situation. Pray for the people involved. Pray for that whole thing, whatever it is, if it's an individual, if it's a whole organization, an institution, whatever it is, pray that the kingdom of God will come more fully into their lives. Because you see, this is a kingdom of love. That's what we just read in the slide before that. When the scribe comes to Jesus and asks him, what's the greatest command? Remember, love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbors yourself. And what did Jesus say? What was Jesus' response when this man said, Lord, you're right. I get it. That's what, that's what you say. That's what it says. Jesus told him, you're not far from the kingdom. In other words, if you can see that, if you can see that the most important thing in life is to love God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself, the kingdom of God is creeping up on you, man. The kingdom of God has come right in front of you and is inviting you and wanting you to come on in because that's the kingdom. That's what the kingdom is. And as we learn and grow in our love for Christ and as we grow in our love for one another, then what we're going to find out is life in the kingdom is grand. Life in the kingdom is good because life in the kingdom heals broken relationships. Life in the kingdom is about loving people anyway. You've been mistreated, love them anyway. What does the scripture say? What do you do to those who curse you? Anybody, what does it say? Bless them. 
Bless them. When somebody is mean to you, do the opposite. What's the opposite of being mean? Do it. If somebody hates you, what's the opposite of hate? Love them. Love them anyway. How can I do that? How can I? I can't love my enemies. I can't, I can't love people. I can't bless people that curse me. I can't do those things. It's not in me. You're right. You're right. It's not in me and it's not in you by ourselves. But I want to tell you this. When the Spirit of Christ is in you, you can do above and beyond what you ever ask or think. The power of the Lord Jesus Christ can give you the impetus, the will, the wherewithal, whatever you need to love, to forgive, to serve. And when you live like that, you're living kingdom life. You're, li you're living the life of a king. You ever want to live the life of a king? You ever want to have it like a king? Well, you can. You can have the life of King Jesus. That's right. Might not be the king you had in mind when you thought about living the life of a king, but I'm going to tell you something. You can live the life of a king. And his name is Jesus. Yes. So, don't forget this. The kingdom came when Jesus came. Okay? The kingdom came in the preaching of the word. The gospel message brought and ushered in the kingdom. The kingdom came on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was poured out on the followers of Jesus. The kingdom came in all of these events. And I want you to know that today, today, when the Spirit moves and works in the hearts of sinners to draw them to Jesus Christ, the kingdom of God has come. Yes. So, Here's what we pray. Because the next phrase is your will be done. Your will be done. Your will be done right here in our world. Your will be done right here in my house. Your will be done right here in my heart, in my mind, in my hands, and my feet. Your will be done in this church. Your will be done. And when God's will, when God's rule, when God's reign, when God's love envelops our lives, our families, our church family, our community, wherever it is, whenever that happens, the kingdom of God has come. Pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen.